everybody. Welcome back to uh, another edition of the Orthodox Medievalist. Uh, I know we've been in this show, we've been all over the place in terms of our topics, and that's quite deliberate on my part. I want to bring uh, the medieval uh, and communitarian idea to as many uh, levels as I possibly can in terms of history, uh, theology, institutions, modern politics, and ancient politics. Uh, truth is singular. Truth is one, and it doesn't make any difference what era we're in or what time we're in. Truth is the truth. And uh, that's what I struggle, at least to, to uh, in some poor way, uh, bring out to everybody uh, on this program. Uh, today we're going to be talking about monarchy. Um, I uh, am as much of a, a monarchist as I am a nationalist. I think those two concepts in general are as much complementary as they are in um, as they are in tension. And today, I want to deal with monarchy um, uh, primarily because uh, I, I, I've come across. Actually, this is some time ago. Come across an article by Cynthia Whitaker, and eventually that's been turned into a book more recently on the concept of 18th century Russian royalism and Russian monarchy from an intellectual point of view. How can we uh, defend the institution of monarchy, which oversaw a far healthier society than what we suffer with today? It's been my thesis in my, in my working life ever since graduate school that mankind only has two options, politically speaking, and that is monarchy and oligarchy. Uh, there is no such thing as popular rule only because that um, domineering personalities are always going to take over any particular institution that comes into existence, even with the best of intentions. That oligarchy is not merely a state of, of society, but is also a state of mind, and that there are certain people who define their success in life based on how much power they have. And these kind of people always have a tendency to take over. Oligarchy is the iron law of social institutions, and it's, a, it's an unfortunate reality, but it is a reality. Um, the, the only other option that human beings have is to have an overarching power, to have an overarching force that's capable of uh, creating order and controlling the personalities that seek domination, that seek power, and seek to hurt others as a matter of course. And it's part of the, the fall of human beings. It's part of the fall of man uh, that human beings are like this. And politics has to take into consideration the reality of the fall of man. Men are evil. All of humankind are evil. Uh, they seek power. Uh, they seek uh, to dominate others, and even with the best of intentions. And it's unfortunately, it, it, it's an empirical fact. This isn't something that we are free to deny. So the concept of monarchy becomes more and more important. And I hold that um, uh, democratic so-called forms of government uh, exist as uh, a way of the oligarchy, those with money, those with power, to overthrow uh, monarchy, to overthrow that institution which controls them that institution which keeps the money powers in line and so that they can rule uh, through naked force. And democratic governments 
from Oliver Cromwell onward have been based on the idea uh, that you choose one faction or another of those uh, people with money, or at least those people who are capable of convincing the moneyed powers that they deserve to be uh, in power and that they will do the bidding of those with money, those who dominate the banks and everything else. Uh, and, and there's only two political choices in any given society, uh, oligarchy or um, autocracy or monarchy. And there's basically four general points of view in defending uh, the royal idea. The first is cohesion. The idea that monarchy represents the unity of a people regardless of how diverse that particular people is at any given time. There are societies that are made up, uh, particularly urban societies, that are made up of many different kinds of people. Oftentimes this is an unavoidable reality of social life, but the royal house and the royal family can form a, uh, a nexus of cohesion. This idea of unity in diversity, and sometimes there's really nothing else that a society can do uh, to maintain some form of unity. The second idea is um, the change in terms of leadership, uh, the concept of the hereditary principle. The third is the defender of the faith, the defender of the moral background of a people. Moral background being its basic religious idea uh, that can overcome divisions in terms of ethnicity or, uh, or race. And lastly, the concept of moral example. The idea that the monarchy is meant to be an icon. There's an old concept in, in, in Russia prior to the schism of, uh, of 1666 where the, the Russian monarch was not meant to rule so much as to reign, as to be an icon, an example uh, of religious piety, of bravery, uh, for the population as a whole. Of course, this is before the era where our um, where our social betters have given us celebrities as some kind of a perverted um, uh, substitute for the pantheon of pagan gods. And that's what the celebrity is. The celebrity is part of the new pagan pantheon. Uh, but, but that's our moral example today. Uh, in old Russia and elsewhere, it was the royal family. The royal family was, regardless of all their imperfections, was meant to be an icon of piety, was to be the image of how to live life. And so those are the four general approaches to the concept of autocracy or monarchy that Whitaker and so many others in the past have, um, have put out. Now, um, I want to deal with three concepts of monarchy for the remainder of this program. Uh, the dynastic concept, the empirical concept, and the idea of the rejection of despotism, that oligarchy is always the most totalitarian of systems where autocracy has a tendency to preserve the communal autonomy of many aspects in society. So those are the three basic points of view that I want to structure this idea around, and, and I'm taking this from Whitaker's piece, uh, specifically her, her articles, and now she has a book out on these topics. Um, 
and they're worth discussing because they really want to create a typology of how it is that monarchy understood itself. We know how democracy understands itself in terms of representation, in terms of regular elections, uh, various kinds of freedoms, but we also realize that in practice, uh, democratic governments in the 20th century have been highly totalitarian, have been um, highly regulative states, have been warfare states, and have been states where ultimately power resides not in any royal family, but in an oligarchy. And those people with the connections, particularly media connections, connections with the major uh, major banking institutions uh, that have been able uh, to to create politicians, to create political parties, to use the media to promote their agenda. But like it or not, uh, I mean, even if you're of the opinion that monarchy is somehow tyranny, it's very easy to counter that democracy is oligarchy and that without media control, without access to large amounts of money, candidacy uh, to office or the promotion of awareness of a certain issue doesn't mean anything. Without money and media access, you are nothing in a uh, democratic society, in republican uh, societies. Uh, So I want to hold, in general, again, to repeat, that you have one or two choices in politics, either monarchy or oligarchy, and you have to take your pick. And I'm taking my pick in terms of monarchy. Um, My focus, of course, is on Russian monarchy, but monarchy has existed all over the world and is really the primordial way that societies are governed as an image of the family whether it be patriarchal or matriarchal it doesn't make any difference there have been queens and kings who have ruled all over the world the one thing they have in common is that they are the head of the family and therefore the protector of the family as a result of that they are the head of the nation of the people and therefore the protector of the nation and the people So let's start out with the concept of monarchy as a dynastic institution. The primary concept is the nature of the succession. And it's often, although not always the case, that hereditary rule becomes the principle of succession. Russia was very um, fortunate in the 19th century where there was really no question of the succession of rule. This is something that plagued the Roman Empire, and right up until the fall of Western Rome, and even Eastern Rome, the beginning of the Renaissance, uh, there was no overt concept of how the succession was to be understood. Succession means, via hereditary right, that politics as we know it does not exist. It is not a matter, ideally speaking, of different political factions, all led by wealthy people, jockeying for position. If anything, that's what monarchy is trying to prevent. A monarch has to come to the throne not owing anybody anything. We don't have to pay back the various factions uh, that have uh, brought us to power, giving us the money and the media access to convince enough people to vote for us. The idea of the dynastic basis of monarchy is that politics, in that very bad sense of the word, is eliminated. 
Now, we're talking ideals here, and there's nothing the matter with talking ideals, because people who believe in democracy in its Republican sense also talk about ideals. They talk about elections and representation and freedom of speech as ideal entities. But we need to discuss all of these concepts in terms of actual performance in day-to-day -day society. That's the problem with political theory. Political theory uh, deals with ideals only. And yet history in comparative politics deals with how these ideals have actually functioned in uh, specific societies. So in order to come to any particular kind of um, conclusion on these questions, we need to use both. We need to understand the ideal concept of how these forms of government um, define themselves. And on the other hand, we need to be historians and seeing how these ideals actually worked out in practice. And we realize that regardless of what your particular point of view is, speaking in ideal terms doesn't tell us anything. That just tells us what you might want to see happen. That doesn't tell us what actually happened. And that's the reality of comparative politics and history, is that they deal with these ideals in terms of how they actually worked out in practice. As I've said before on this program, and we'll say again, uh, the real fraud of Republican and Democratic thinking is that they often confront the idea of monarchy as it actually worked out in the Renaissance and the early modern era with an ideal of democracy. And what any intellectually honest person needs to do is to compare democracy as it's actually functioned in places like England and America and monarchy as it actually functioned in places like France, Germany, or Russia. When you put it that way, of course, uh, it sounds, um, the, the two forms of government sound a lot more alike and function a lot more uh, alike and similar to one another uh, rather than uh, talking in terms of, of ideals. But at the very least, in terms of, of, the, of the monarchist ideal, the idea of hereditary succession is immensely important. The idea is that politics is eliminated. You don't have powerful factions paying off one politician or another politician to promote their line. Succession exists as an accident of birth. That's a very good thing in that powerful factions have to then bow to the power of uh, the monarchy. So that means that you don't have the development uh, and institutionalization of interest groups like you have in society. The real monarchist, uh, historically and in the contemporary era, views interest groups as a great evil in democracy and one of the great uh, things that have destroyed democracy in the past that the oligarchy uh, organized into various interests uh, in America those interests are real estate banking uh, finance uh, energy uh, automotive electricity you know electronics etc uh, those are the interest groups they have their own leaders and they finance their pet politicians now, those pet politicians, uh, generally speaking, uh, begin talking uh, in universal terms. And they talk about uh, energy independence and they talk about freedom of speech. But the reality is, is that they work for their employers. And their employers are very powerful oligarchic interests. But it's that oligarchic connection that gets them media attention. Uh, very few people. 
uh, from conservative to liberal to nationalist could ever deny that that's the case, and yet they hold that democracy is, of course, the only possible form of government in this kind of very weird intellectual gymnastics they all seem to engage in. I want to say also in terms of a dynasty that you're dealing with an extended family. You're dealing with a powerful family that exists to represent the entire population no matter of what their class is. So if a royal family has the plenitude of power, has complete power in society, they can at any given moment overrule any interest group no matter how powerful or wealthy they are. That's something to take very seriously, and it's going to come up again and again in monarchist discourse over the years, uh, and has been the case in terms of monarchist apologetics uh, over the last few centuries. That at the very least, uh, an absolute monarchy, that is a monarchy that has a plenitude of legislative and executive power, can overrule interest groups that, if left to themselves, would absolutely dominate the society. Let me give you a quick historical example here. During the reign of Ivan the Terrible in Russia, Ivan the Terrible, uh, whose reign, uh, the, one of the longest in European history, uh, is concomitant with that of the European Renaissance, this idea of state building and nation building. Ivan the Terrible um, opposed and, and dedicated his entire royal career to reigning in the oligarchy of Russia, the powerful noble families that held thousands and thousands of families in serfdom, uh, that used their money to control society. Ivan the Terrible was uh, dedicated to the idea that I'm going to use my power as monarch to control these people, and thus to rule according to the common good, not the good of those classes with money. Therefore, throughout Ivan the Terrible's reign, you had this constant seesaw battle between the aristocracy on the one hand and the power of monarchy on the other. But there came a point where Ivan abdicated the throne. He said, I can't take this anymore. Politics is such a dirty business, I can't deal with it. And he put one of his friends in charge of the country and said, I am finished. The nobility themselves came to his retreat and said, please, Ivan, come back to rule. We need you to rule for one reason, and that is because the common people hate us. And they hate us for this reason, that when you were a boy and your father, Basil III, had died, the nobles ruled the country as an oligarchy. But that just meant that those with money plundered and exploited those without money. The only thing that protected us was you, the royal power. And therefore, without the royal power, we can't function because we are hated. In other words, the nobles of Russia admitted fully that the point of their rule is to exploit those without money, without power, without access. And therefore, we need Ivan, we need the royal power to come back and protect us. Of course, instead... Ivan came back and crushed them. And as a result of this, Ivan the Terrible became a hero to the Russian people. There are more folk songs dedicated to Ivan the Fourth than almost any other figure 
in Russian history because the poor look to the monarchy for protection against the rich. The monarchy was more powerful than the rich, the only institution more powerful than the rich, and therefore the only place they can go for redress against uh, the wealthy of the population, the aristocracy. So Ivan the Terrible, in attacking and crushing the aristocracy uh, and, and leading the way for the centralization of royal power, relatively speaking, in Russia, um, uh, that that, that, that um, became the central bulwark of justice and law. Oligarchy cares only for money and power, whether it be in Ivan the Terrible's time or in the Jewish oligarchy in the Russian Federation right now. With, with Putin and Medvedev and the military being the symbol today of central royal authority. The same dichotomy continues to exist. Powerful um, oligarchs on the one hand and the monarchy, the military, and the church on the other. It's been the same whether you're talking about France or Britain or Germany or Russia or the Byzantine Empire. Wherever you go, it's the same dichotomy. And it's something that we need to take very seriously. For Ivan the Terrible, his power came not so much from the common population, but from Constantine the Great, from Vladimir, the Christianizer of all Russia, from the Princess Olga before him, from Vladimir Monomax. He makes this very clear in his writings to the aristocracy and their scion, um, uh, um, uh, Kurbsky, uh, the, the Ivan the Terrible Kurbsky, uh, Andrei Kurbsky correspondence uh, in terms of political theory in Russia became uh, the symbol of this confrontation of oligarchy versus monarchy. And it's the same old thing. Kurbsky claimed that Ivan the Terrible was a tyrant and that he killed people. Ivan the Terrible shot back that you're an oligarch, you care about money and power and honor and not the common good. And that's why the minute you have a problem with me, you run off to the Lithuanians and become a traitor. That's very typical of your class. And Ivan the Terrible, historically speaking, is in the right here. Because Ivan says that, uh, historically, the Russian aristocracy, whenever they were threatened by the monarchy, would then look for allies outside of the country. Enemies of the Russian population, like the Poles, like the Lithuanians, like the Germans, like the even the Turks in some cases. But that's typical of monarchy. Of course, at the same time, Ivan and many other Orthodox monarchs looked to the Old Testament for the basis of their authority, specifically King David, who had the power to rule over a people, while the priesthood had the power to forgive sins. And therefore, there was this diarchy of power. But ultimately, the head of the family was not the priesthood, but the king. And as head of the family, his primary job was to protect the family on the one hand, and on the other hand to make sure that the poor members of the family were taken care of. That ultimately the real justification of monarchy in Russia, in Byzantium, in Rome, or in ancient Israel is about mediation. The mediation uh, to, to, to act as an objective mediator between the nobles and the population, between the population and God, between the clergy and the population, between the clergy and God. But the monarch always existed as this font of law and justice where birth and station 
ruled over money. We talked about in this program the concept of the estates and how central estates were in medieval political ideas. But what needs to be reiterated is that the idea of estates refers to the concept that you belong to an estate regardless of your specific financial situation. So you have this weird situation in France and Russia and Germany and England where you had middle class people far wealthier than the aristocracy, even though theoretically the aristocracy was supposed to be a more powerful estate than the middle classes were. It's not about money. It's about birth. It's about honor. It's about virtue. Only when the empire becomes an oligarchy, which some people call democracy, suddenly money matters. And this occurs in the Italian Renaissance. That entire movement in Florence was controlled by the Medici banking family. There was not a single major Renaissance writer or painter or sculptor that was not financed by the Medici family in their own interests. In ancient Rome, the the emperor under Octavian came to power with the explicit idea that the old republic oppressed the poor, that the senatorial class was not an aristocracy, but an oligarchy that justified its position solely based on its money and its access to power. Therefore, people like even Sulla, prior uh, prior to Octavian, who became Caesar, and their successors, uh, they understood themselves as the font of law and justice, as a, 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 and, and you know an ally of the military power that um, can serve as a mediator between rich and poor in the interest of justice, not in the interest of equality. E- equality is impossible; that, that can never happen. What can happen, though, is justice. And therefore, what you need is a power that can mediate between the interests of the poorest people in society and the wealthier people in society with the understanding that money is not sufficient to gain justice, just like poverty is not sufficient to gain justice. There is an absolute right and wrong that I, as king or emperor or general, represent. That's the nature of dynastic monarchy, and that's its ideal basis. When we come back, we're going to deal with the remaining two arguments for monarchy, the imperial, uh, excuse me, the empirical uh, and the non-despotic. Okay, we are back. I want to thank my listeners, everyone from Voice of Reason, in, in helping me in this program. Uh, we're dealing with this, uh, in this program with monarchy. Uh, specifically, you know, it's typical for us with with a Russian uh, uh, tint to it, but monarchy in general. And we're going to start uh, the second half with the empirical idea of the monarchy, the monarchy as it actually functions. And, you know, defenders of monarchy in the 18th century, this is fairly well known uh, uh, in, in European history, really believe that monarchy provides better results than uh, a parliamentary government that monarchy represents unity, it represents the executive power, it represents the speed of action over and above the slow deliberation of a parliamentary institution. Uh, It, as we said before, leads to the reining in of interest groups, that interest groups uh, simply cannot impose their will as they can in uh, uh, democratic governments. And that, you know, monarchy, in spite of the dynastic concept, remains as it was in the Roman Empire. 
And remember, people like Ivan the Terrible made certain that the Roman Empire was laid out as their primary uh, guide in terms of uh, a royal authority. In Ivan's case, the Eastern Empire founded by Constantine, but with that implicit assumption that uh, because Constantine comes from the West, that the Western Empire also, as well as the Israelite Kingdom of David, uh, comes uh, under that very same uh, under that very same idea. But there is the idea of contract, the idea that all peoples have alienated some within any given society have alienated some of their self-rule to a monarchy in exchange for objective rule. But there is this concept of, of contract, uh, that every group in the population has an interest in an overarching authority that can beat down their opponents at any given moment. That even if you're an oligarch, there's a sense that you can be demoted and outspent uh, at any given moment, and therefore the monarchy is always there to um, to come to uh, an objective idea of, of justice. In the Russian case, there's this idea that Russia is very vulnerable. Russia has no natural boundaries, and therefore she's always ripe for invasion. And, and, and in Russian history, that's the case. She's invaded from the east regularly um, through the Mongols, the south, uh, in medieval Russia, through the uh, Turkic tribes, including the Khazars, who um, uh, were, were uh, deeply involved in the slave trade and captured uh, Russian men and especially Russian women for the Mediterranean slave trade throughout the Middle Ages. Um, uh, and from the West, of course, from the Turks, from the Poles, from the Germans, from the Lithuanians, from the Swedes later on, uh, from uh, the French under Napoleon, from the Germans under Hitler, on and on and on. Russia is vulnerable at almost every level except the North. And that's something that, that should be uh, uh, understood uh, in dealing with Russian history. And therefore, that a powerful monarch is absolutely necessary to maintain a strong executive chain of command. And I've said in this program before how important the idea of central command is for the Russian military and how important mobility is for the Russian military to be able to move from one section to another because you really never know from what direction in this huge area uh, a threat can come. As I said before also, the idea of monarchy is the idea of the head of the family. A male monarch in Russia was always known as our good father, the female as our mother. Uh, it, it, it's, the image is meant to be consistent, no matter whether it's a male or a female, and Russia has known many female rulers over the years. And the idea of the nation, of the people, of the society as one big family with many different parts is something that has worked for monarchy over the years, and therefore monarchy sees itself as the head of this natural family of the nation. Something else in the empirical uh, realm also needs to be understood, and that is the idea that people are fallen, that when people in a democracy go to the voting booth how do we know what they're voting for? Why do we know? Or I, I, should, I really should say, uh, how do we know what their motives are? Maybe their motives are completely selfish. Maybe they really don't care 
And what about politicians? They're getting money from elite members of society. How do we know to what extent they're controlled by these elite people? How do we know what the what the mentality, you know, people vote for a, a politician because they want their taxes lowered or because uh, they don't want many regulations on their business or they want more enforcement in this area or another. You know, they never really think in terms of the common good and therefore these politicians are not going to think in terms of the common good. Only with one overarching authority can you have any concept of the common good. In a democracy, you only have partial goods but those partial goods ultimately are attached to a member or a faction of the oligarchy. Now, people are evil. People only care about themselves. They're demanding. They're not understanding. They're demanding. They demand their own interests, no matter how stupid they are. They demand their own rights, no matter what ridiculous uh, purpose they might be put to in reality, in actual day-to-day -day life. And they forget about the one thing that makes all of this work. The one thing that makes rights and duties make any sense at all, and that is the idea of a common good. We have a single society made up of many members and many estates, and yet we all have things in common. We're all Russian, we're all American, we're all Christian. We all want to help the poor. We all want to assist those unfortunate, the sick and the elderly. We want to punish the guilty and free and save the innocent, etc., etc. So we do have things in common. But only with a common force can this ever be put uh, into actual uh, public policy action. I mean, even in, in American democracy, you know, the best of bills, the best of laws always has a thousand and one uh, 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 riders on it each one of these written and drafted by a special interest to make certain that their interest is taken into consideration. The oligarchy always demands their pound of flesh no matter what. A monarchy can take the oligarchy, punch them in the face, occasionally, literally, in the Russian, in the Russian case, and say no. But in a democracy, you can't say no because the oligarchy controls a democracy. There have been many cases where a monarchy is an elected official. In Russia, after the time of troubles, uh, Zemeichel, a very underrated monarch, by the way, a very young man, he, I think he was only 17 when he was elected, was elected by a council of the land, the so-called Zemensky Sobor, uh, that brought together all levels of the population, from the peasantry to the most wealthy, and they settled on the candidate of Michael, who was then to rule Absolutely. In other words, there were no institutions that then permitted the representation of the wealthy and powerful. Because even if you had a way to represent the poor classes, the middle classes, the townsmen, it would take probably less than a generation before an oligarchy from their own ranks would then take over these very same institutions. Uh, when um, Anna of Courland uh, came to the to, to the throne as a relative of Peter the Great. The assembly of commoners demanded that she tear up the conditions that the aristocracy had placed on her. It's a very curious um, area in the mid 18th century in Russia. <coughs> the idea that 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 uh, Tsaritsa uh, uh, Anna 
um, had been given these conditions by the aristocracy. It was the common population that demanded that she rip up those conditions and rule as an autocrat. So here you have Tsaritsa or Empress Anna, a German woman, um, being being told by the common people, please rip up the Constitution, because the Constitution is written by the rich guys. It's written by them and for them. But we know that if you are an absolute ruler with a plenitude of power, you at least have the ability to intercede on our behalf against these very same rich guys. So here you have it, you know, again and again in Russian history, you have the common population, usually led by the clergy, demanding the monarch remain absolute because they know they might not be able to articulate, but they know at some level that uh, a constitution will be written by the rich and well-connected, and therefore we need an absolute monarch that can at least potentially assist us in our needs. Okay. The last concept is the idea of the lack of despotism. That there really is no such thing as an absolute monarch in the sense that a monarch could do whatever he or she wants. That's highly doubtful. First of all, all absolute monarchs are bound by the law. That was the case throughout Europe, and only very rarely did a monarch under extreme conditions have to break the law in order to do something. Throughout Russian history, monarchs, uh, Alexis and Nicholas I uh, uh, specifically, demanded that the law codes of the society be um, codified so that the common people can know what the truth of any given law is. You see this with Justinian and the Byzantine Empire. The idea of an empire according to law is a royal idea not a democratic idea. The, Demo the Democrats and Republicans, they are piggybacking on that idea. It is a royal concept that we rule by law, but what is law? Law is not what the rich say it is. Law is what our customs are for the different estates of the population, that the judges have to come from these same estates. Peasants cannot be judged by rich guys. Peasants can only be judged by other peasants. That's fair. That's right. Not having a single law code that is created by the rich and then enforced by the rich. That is outrageous. But that's what the entire modern world, politically speaking, is based on. Monarchy is de facto limited by canon law. The monarchy is as much a religious figure as he is a uh, secular figure, as a legal figure. And therefore, the canon law of the Orthodox Church or the Roman Church in the West, becomes another way to limit the power of the monarch. All Russian monarchs, at least in the 19th century, were openly um, pious. They held the final judgment in dread. This is not something that they could merely throw aside because uh, they didn't want to listen to it. They were legitimately pious people. This is a religious institution. So, as British society in the 19th century is creating a uh, parliamentary oligarchy where, you know, the factories enslaved thousands and thousands of, of English and Irish people, the monarchy in Russia at the exact same time is defending the peasant commune and peasant local government. 
So the defenders of democracy, uh, in, in its you know, traditional sense, are going to have to deal with that reality. The monarchy is meant to be the image of justice. He is not meant necessarily to embody the law, but to embody equity and justice. Sometimes the law is not just. That's why there has to be a situation where a monarch can break the law uh, as a, in order to enforce justice. Sometimes the law can oppress the poor. Sometimes the law can always favor the rich, and therefore you need a power in society powerful enough that can overthrow the law in this particular case for the sake of justice. We know that law isn't necessarily just in every given case. We know that it's just in general, and that's okay, but we also realize that it isn't just in every specific um, in every specific case. And, and, and in traditional medieval monarchy, it was always the case that even the lowest, most illiterate commoner can petition the monarch for redress of grievances, even to the point where Tsar Alexis of, of Moscow in all Russia, who was the son and successor of Tsar Michael, who was elected by the assembly of the land, he had a basket outside of his window. Anybody from, from a, a, an aristocrat to a soldier to a priest to a peasant can walk over to that basket and put a little note saying, Dear uh, Holy Father, please help me. My landlord beats me up every day, whatever it is, and please do something about it. And as he's falling asleep every night, he sits in bed and he reads all of these petitions. That's the nature of monarchy. Imagine doing that at the House of Representatives in America. That's the basis of the royal idea. So, um, I gave you today the ideal of monarchy, as you hear so many times the ideal of democracy. Of course, given the fact that we're fallen, sinful people, it never works out in reality as it is in, in its ideality. But at the same time, neither does democracy. And I submit to you, and will continue to submit to you, uh, that monarchy uh, has a track record in terms of human rights and freedoms and liberty and economic security easily uh, equal to democracy, if not superior. So uh, I want to thank you for listening. I, I want to thank the voice of reason, Mike and Steve and Dietrich. Uh, you've been uh, fans of mine, and I appreciate that very much. I'm not worthy of it. Uh, I certainly am not worthy of it, uh, but I do my best. And uh, God bless every, every one of you in our struggle. Against